Good morning, Ethos Church. Um, we're just going to kind of hop into it this morning. So we are in week four of a teaching series rooted in James chapter four, verses one through 10. If you've got a Bible with you and wanna open up, that's where we're gonna be this morning as our primary text, James chapter four. And this teaching series, it's titled Draw Near. It's a phrase that comes from verse eight out of James four. And we've kind of been on this journey as we explore these verses of drawing near and have been exploring these verses up to this declaration in verse eight, to draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And like laying stepping stones along a path, James, the author of this letter, is calling the people of God into a life of consecration, of holiness, and whole person devotion to God as we draw near. And today we're gonna pick back up where we left off two weeks ago. Last week we kind of took a little detour to talk a little bit more in depth about prayer, but we're gonna hop back to where we were two weeks ago, picking up in verse four. I'm gonna read for us James chapter four, verses one through four, so that to kind of catch us back up to where we are and so that we're really in James's train of thought as we enter into verse four. So this is James chapter four, verses one through four. What causes quarrels, what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, and so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And then verse four, this is our text for today. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Good morning, welcome to church. We're really glad that you guys are here. But seriously, like so, so glad y'all are here. I'm making light of something that probably feels a little heavy on this first read through. And today we're gonna have a conversation around this passage here in James chapter four. And as kind of a refresher, James is writing to Christians scattered throughout the Roman empire, living outside of Jerusalem. And these words, they're words that were written to the people of God, those who call Jesus Lord. And the whole hope of the string of these verses in James 4 is to draw near to God, to be close to God, as I mentioned earlier. And James in verse 4 here, he's laying out the next stepping stone along the path, one that states that being close to God and being close to the world simply doesn't work. They're kind of mutually exclusive. And that's what we're gonna talk about this morning, all right? In her memoir, author, poet, hip-hop artist, and follower of Jesus, Jackie Hill Perry, she recounts the moment that the Holy Spirit intervened in her life 
One night as she was laying in her bed watching TV, her mind was racing through thoughts during a particular commercial break as unaided minds tend to do. When out of nowhere, this thought emerges, not wholly her own, that her current lifestyle, a lifestyle that you could describe as one driven by her passions and in friendship with the world, that lifestyle, this voice in her head warned, would be the death of her. I sat up quick, she writes, like I'd seen a ghost or felt a hand on my back. The thought wasn't audible, but loud enough to interrupt everything. All other conversations within me quieted down and my heart got heavy as a brick. Where the sentence came from, I didn't know. I couldn't map its origins. And after an internal dialogue about the origins of this thought, Jackie concluded that she didn't just think that up. It just came. Maybe it was God, she says. Like a flashing red light, he was trying to warn me. Reading that chapter in her book, I was reminded of a moment in Genesis 4. When God sees the darkness and the hate and the murder and the lust for acceptance and revenge in Cain's heart, and God comes to Cain and he warns him that sin is like a crouching beast lying in wait to devour him. God warns Cain, like Jackie, that if he gives in to his passions and the devil along with him, that they will devour him that he would murder not only his brother, but his very own soul in the process. James here in this passage that we're exploring today, speaking by the Holy Spirit, is giving to the church a warning similar to the one that God gave Cain, and that many years later he spoke to Jackie as she was laying in bed moments earlier, completely content with life as it was and kind of in love with it. It's a warning that though quite firm in James's words is one that is ultimately laced, I believe, with the compassion of the father who desires for his children life, not death. The father who knows that friendship with the world spells certain death and he desires to spare you from that. So friends, this morning, lean in, have ears to hear. Do not shy back from words that may at first sting, but that ultimately lead to eternal life. In John 15, Jesus tells us that every branch that does in him that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will bear even more fruit. You adulterous people. It probably says something weird about me that I love some translations. They don't even make a full sentence out of that. They just say, adulterers, exclamation point. (laughs) Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity 
with God. I really like Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this verse. He says, you are cheating on God. If all you want is your own way, flirting with the world, every chance you get, you end up enemies of God and his way. Now, it's important to note that this is not a new train of thought in James' letter, but is one single thread that started back in verse 1, and the conviction of adultery comes on the heels of him pointing out that the desires of our hearts are not rooted in love for God, but in the passions of our flesh, a love of self-indulgence, selfishness, pride, therefore making us adulterers. In the book of Exodus, God, he rescues the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He leads them through the wilderness to a mountain called Mount Sinai. And there at Mount Sinai, without getting into too much detail, God and Israel, they enter into a covenant with each other. To an ancient audience, this would read very much like a wedding following all of the customs of engagement and the rituals for a wedding ceremony. God, he gives this proposal of the covenant to the people of Israel, and Israel responds in unison, all that the Lord has said, we will do. And with that confirmation, Moses goes back up on the mountain to receive from God two copies of the wedding certificate, copies of the vows that they were making to one another, and instructions to build a house for God to come and dwell with the people of Israel. And while Moses is at the wedding altar on behalf of Israel on Sinai, the people of Israel they ask Aaron, Moses' brother, to make an idol for them to worship instead because they were tired of waiting on Moses and therefore tired of waiting on God. And so Moses, he makes an idol for them out of the gold that God gave them as a gift on their way out of Egypt. And Aaron takes it and he fashions it into an idol that they then bow down and worship made from the gifts that God had given them. And they party, they feast, they get drunk, and they party hard. Some translations, they actually, they use the term, they indulged in revelry or in lewd behavior. Many scholars believe that this is a reference to illicit sexual behavior, which is a fancy way of saying orgies. What is happening in this story is the equivalent of God's bride having an affair with him at the altar. Josh said it really eloquently earlier this week. He said, the groom, God, is writing his wedding vows while the bride is sleeping with a hooker. God tells Moses This is happening down at the base of the mountain and God is ready to leave this covenant with Israel behind and start over with just Moses. But Moses intercedes on behalf of the people and God and Israel, they reestablish their covenant and the story continues. But later on in the story, God, he's talking with Moses just before Israel's about to enter into the promised land. 
a land that currently is filled with pagan nations and kingdoms that worship foreign gods. And in this conversation between God and Moses, God tells him, he says, this is Deuteronomy 31, these people will rise and whore after foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. They will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. God's saying, I know they're gonna cheat on me again, Mo. And if you're familiar with the story, you know that this is exactly what happens. The Israelites, they remain faithful for a little while, but after some time, they compromise. They get comfortable living in and among those who do not worship Yahweh until before they realize that they are actually having a full-blown affair with foreign gods, reveling in their sin. You adulterers. I wouldn't be surprised if these stories were on James's mind and heart as he penned these words in this letter. You have forsaken your covenant with God, chasing after the passions of your flesh and making friends with the world. You're having a full-blown affair through your friendship with the world and then coming home and getting in bed with your wife as if nothing is going on, as if you have a completely clean clear, guilt-free conscience. Do you not see that friendship with the world is enmity with God? What is this world that James is referring to anyway? I'm glad you guys asked. In the language and thinking of the New Testament, and the New Testament authors, the world can have several different meanings the world can refer to the place that we inhabit, you know, the ground that we walk on, the mountains, the rivers, the valleys, the oceans, the streams, the deserts, all the places in God's creation that we call home. The world can also refer to the people who inhabit this place that we call the world, earth. Such, for example, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. And the world can also refer to the system at work in the world, underneath parts of humanity and our cultures that are working in opposition to God. Dallas Willard once defined the world as our cultural and social practices that are under the control of Satan and thus opposed to God. And in that definition, there's a dynamic that's important for us to understand that's at play. This dynamic between the system of the world and Satan, it's important because the world is Satan's domain. Don't misunderstand me, make no mistake, Satan is not God, but even Jesus called him the ruler of this world. And if something or someone belongs to the world in this sense, then they belong to the kingdom of darkness. John Mark Comer defines the world as a system of ideas, values, 
morals, practices, and social norms that are integrated into the mainstream and eventually institutionalized in a culture corrupted by the twin sins of rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. In the eyes of the New Testament, the system of the world is something to be on guard against. It is the system that Satan uses to entice people and to lead them astray, oftentimes very subtly. It is one of the tools that he uses to steal, kill, and destroy. It's how the viral contagion of sin spreads and corrupts humanity until it becomes normalized in our culture through our own rebellion against God and the coercion of the devil. In the world, sin is normalized. In the world, the values of the kingdom of heaven are flipped upside down. What is evil and detestable to God in the world becomes celebrated. And what is good and pleasing to God is condemned by the world. But the tricky thing is, is that the devil is so crafty and patient in his work that we often don't even realize it. At times, it even masquerades as light, justice, and truth. To quote John Mark again, he says that in the world, sin is recast as any number of things. Freedom, human rights, reproductive justice, the way things are, nature, science, Oh, boys will be boys, anything but sin. In the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, that's a reference to 1 John 2, we'll be there in a minute. They're not only tolerated, they're celebrated. You're more likely to find them in a parade than in a stinging rebuke. Can you think of any places in our culture where sin might be more likely to be celebrated rather than rebuked? And now remember, this is a contagion. It creeps and spreads until eventually we are lulled into a deadly sleep by the coercive scheme of Satan and our own passions. And so I ask, can you think of any places in your own life where sin is more likely to be celebrated or condoned rather than rebuked? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to make a friend, to be friends with the world, makes himself an enemy of God. Church, we need to wake up and to this and become vigilant, not paranoid, but vigilant, and in humility, repent of where we have been in bed with the world and with the enemy where we have let compassion and consecration fall asleep into compromise and where compromise has been left unchecked and become turned into condoning and celebrating. 
reveling in our wickedness, like Israel at the mount of foot, at this foot of Mount Sinai, worshiping what they called Yahweh with their lips, but what in reality was a God of their own making and for their own satisfaction. Like a parent warning their children of the dangers of running out into the road or of substance abuse or don't touch the oven, it will burn you. Jesus and the New Testament authors are giving a warning of caution to be on guard against falling prey to the trappings set by Satan through the world and aimed at your passions, aimed at your desires. It's a very real and ever-present threat. In Luke 9, Jesus warns, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? In 1 John 2, the apostle John writes, do not love this world nor the things that it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything that we see and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from the world. And as our text in James says, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Jesus, he actually said something really similar in John 15, speaking to his disciples. Jesus told them, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world but I have chosen you out of the world. And that is why the world hates you. In James 4, the equation is friendship with the world equals an enemy of God. In John 15, it's friendship with God equals an enemy of the world. It's simple algebra that points to the same reality, right? No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Guys, we cannot play both sides. We cannot play both sides. As much as we, as much as I at times might like to, we cannot. We have to choose who it is that we will serve, who it is that we will be friends with, who it is that we will love, God or the world. You can't have both. If we're to believe what scripture says, you cannot have both. It's not me, it's, it's this. If we're to take Jesus at his word, it seems like the world should hate us a little bit more than it currently does. And I don't mean people, I mean the system of the world, remember that. 
But right now, I think Satan, the ruler of this world, most likely looks at the church with a kind of just like, oh yeah, you keep doing your thing over there. Don't bother me. We live in such a time where the church has sought to be friends of the world rather than trying to be a light to it. And if you want my opinion... I'm going to give it if you want it or not. It's not going well. (laughs) I think Satan is mighty well pleased at how asleep the church is. I think Satan is well pleased that many who call the church home are happy to call smiling at strangers loving their neighbor instead of preaching the truth of the gospel. I think Satan is mighty well pleased that many who call the church home are content to attend a church gathering on Sunday and leave God here and go and integrate into the host culture the rest of the week. You want to know why Jesus told the disciples that the world would hate them? Because when the church is being the church, the devil should be shaking in his boots. When the church is being the church, Satan, out of fear, will go to war against it. Read the book of Acts. Satan and the forces of hell were on the offenses against the advances of the kingdom of heaven, breaking through disciples like you and me. Friends, where is that kind of attack counterattack from the enemy on the church. Hell seems oddly at peace with the church in America and maybe the church on Blakemore Avenue. We have been lulled to sleep, or have we been lulled to sleep by the enemy? That's a question. I think God is ready to wake up his church and prepare us to go to war against the gates of hell. But first, we have to stop sleeping with the enemy. Gentry, what about about Jesus? Jesus, the friend of sinners. Jesus, who hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes. What about Jesus? Jesus. Do not confuse Jesus' compassion on people as condoning or celebrating their sin. Jesus was ministering to people who were discarded by and enslaved to the systems of the world. Jesus was offering them hope and freedom and life. To both of them, he called them out of the world. To both, he brings redemption. To both, he calls them into holy monogamy with God. He was inviting them to live. I have known people, including myself, who have allowed the picture of Jesus, the friend of sinners, to condone sin and even participate in it. I... Gentry have at times allowed the picture of Jesus, the friend of sinners, to permit sin in my own life, used it as a way to hold hands with the world, used it as a way to make light of the darkness within my own soul, 
used it as a way to not let go because I'm still kind of really in love with that thing over there. In the Confessions of St. Augustine, just a page before he begins to recount the moment of his conversion, he writes this. As I prayed to you for the gift of chastity, I pleaded, grant me chastity and self-control, but please not yet. Anyone else? I was afraid that you might hear me immediately and heal me of the morbid lust, which I was more anxious to satisfy than to snuff out. Augustine, prior to his conversion, he had been slowly drawing nearer to God, this desire for him growing. But the hooks of sin and friendship with the world were so deeply lodged in his heart that he had no real desire to remove them. This was the reality of his heart that had been forged in the furnace of the world that had been so trapped in the darkness that stepping out of the darkness into the light seemed more painful than pleasurable. But one day after an intense inner wrestling and an encounter with the Holy Spirit, Augustine, he heard the voice of a child coming from a house nearby, singing over and over again the words, pick it up and read, pick it up and read. Taking this as a divine command to pick up some scripture that he had on hand and just read the first verse that he stumbled across, Augustine opens the letter to the Romans and reads this. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. As Jesus sat around the table with sinners and tax collectors, he spoke to them in compassion, words like, repent and go and sin no more. He wasn't speaking words like, you do you, or who am I to judge? That actually was literally Jesus's role. He will judge the living and the dead. Jesus is the judge. Jesus wasn't looking to get down or show that he was hip or relevant. He was looking to set the captive free. He was looking to raise the dead to life. He was looking to turn sinners into saints. He was looking to cleanse these broken people and prepare them as a holy bride for himself, which we call the church. Notice Jesus' words to his disciples in John 15, where he said, I have chosen you out of the world, or I have picked you out of the world. Brothers and sisters, you have been called out of the world. 
If you have given your life to Jesus, you have been plucked out of the world by the loving hand of God. You have been washed clean and given a new identity as a son or a daughter of God. You have been given a new holy calling to be set apart so that you can love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength, which you cannot do with a heart that is divided. And you have been given a holy calling to minister to the world, not fornicate with it. You are the light of the world. You're to be the light of the world, not friends with it, but ministers to it and lovers of God. You cannot be a light to the darkness if you refuse to step out of the darkness. As a follower of Jesus, you are called to carry on the work of Jesus, ministering to those who are discarded by the world or enslaved to it, offering hope and freedom and life through Jesus. Cain did not heed God's warning. And he was cursed to be a fugitive and a wanderer, separated from the presence of God, always seeking to be fulfilled, yet never satisfied. Jackie, that night, took up her sword against the enemy by taking up her cross to follow Jesus and walk in friendship with God. She encountered in God the love and acceptance that she had sought in all the wrong places. Augustine, after that moment, stopped making provisions for the flesh and put on Christ, which in his time meant that he could no longer work as a teacher, forfeiting the career that he had spent his entire life building. You couldn't be a Christian and a teacher in the Roman Empire. He became a lover of God and therefore the, uh, the world viewed him as an enemy and he became one of the most influential saints in church history. James 4, 4 is a warning. It's a stinging rebuke born out of compassionate love. It's a call to repentance in exchange for life. Because friendship with the world will eventually kill you. Guys, do not play. It is not a game. Do not play. The Lord spoke that to me very recently. Do not play. Stop getting drunk and calling it community. Stop watching those shows and lying to yourself that it's not porn. Stop chasing after that economic status and telling yourself it's just for security. It's not a game. 
To steal a line from Dave Clayton, you were born in a battle. There is a war going on around you that you cannot see. And because you were born on the battlefield, it doesn't even always look like war. It just looks like life as you have always known it to be. But there is a very real enemy who hates you. And he will hurl everything he can, every deceptive trick at you because he wants you to suffer miserably in this life and the next. To be a friend of the world is to get in bed with him and join his ranks. But there is also a very real God and father of all who loves you more than you can comprehend and desires for you what he called abundant life. Life with him. That is why he's warning us. Do not, under any circumstances, fornicate with the world. And where you have been, come back. Come back, repent. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Come back. There is instead life and light and healing and freedom in the arms of a holy and loving God. So as we move to communion, here is the invitation. The invitation is to sit quiet we, quietly, quietly with the Lord. There's, yeah, let's sit quietly with the Lord and just ask him to reveal to you any areas of compromise or friendship with the world in your life. And then in that time of prayer with him to also repent of any places that he brings to mind or that you may already have in your mind and know that you have been a friend of the world. And then just ask him to lead you in the way of repentance. This weekend, I had already written this teaching and yesterday I was, I was doing some just completely unrelated reading and came across this, this from Eugene Peterson about repentance. He says, the first step towards God is a step away from the lies of the world. It is a renunciation of the lies we have been told about ourselves, about our neighbors, and about our universe. It is a rejection that is also an acceptance, a no to the world that is a yes to God. So I'm gonna give you guys like seven minutes to pray through these, these prompts here, and I'll be back up to lead us through communion in a little bit.